0: So the other two shows that were nominated for Best Musical, both kind of in their own way, are dealing with our national trauma and shame from the Vietnam War, which, uh, you know, in 1975, it was all very fresh. And the first one we're going to talk about, The Lieutenant, does that very literally. This show was a big flop. It ran for seven previews and nine performances. The music lyrics and book were written by Gene Kurtry, Nitra Sharfman, and Chuck Strand, um, none of whom were professional songwriters and it is about so it has kind of like an existential synopsis the show poses the question where does the guilt lie for the My lai massacre of civilians in 1968 vietnam does it reside solely in the person of the lieutenant who gave the order to waste them or perhaps in the larger military itself, where wars are planned, body counts are calculated, and inconvenient casualties are sometimes scrubbed from the record. Or just maybe the seeds for deeds like Melai are latent in the fabric of the human race, and once in a while the perfect storm of events allows for something terrible like this to happen. The use of music follows the approach of Brecht, whereby the songs comment on the themes and issues of the play. So the Melai Massacre. Some people have called it the most shocking episode of the Vietnam War. A company of soldiers basically massacred a a village of civilians, um, and it's estimated between 350 and 500 people were killed, including men, women, children, and infants. Some of the women were gang-raped and their bodies mutilated. There, and there was a big cover-up afterwards, and then eventually it came out. And some people consider this one of the, the escalating events that made people in the United States really turn against the war. Mm-hmm. 26 soldiers were charged, um, but only one uh, lieutenant, William Kelly Jr., was convicted. The show is about him. He's the, the titular lieutenant. It's like a rock opera because it's totally sung through, mm-hmm. um, kind of in the style of Tommy. And a cast album was recorded, but never officially released. You can get your hands on it if you look hard enough. Like um, we did. <laughs> which, yeah. <laughs> so we'll be playing some snippets from that unreleased cast album.
1: I think that why it failed so miserably was the context in which it was released and the time that it was released. Yeah. But it really it is not bad.
0: No, I was shocked by how much I liked the album.
1: You read really divided things about it where people were like, oh, well, this is a totally fine rock opera. Some people think it's really great and others are like, this is
0: trash. Yeah, and it's interesting that some of the reviews were like, the rock musical is so over. (laughs) Like, find a new form. I know. (laughs) This is tired, like in 1975. But, I mean, obviously the biggest issue uh, was subject matter. Like, it really is, like, such an unspeakably awful thing that happened, and it's difficult to make a musical that people are going to want to see about something like that. Yeah. Even though it does ultimately, like, it does sort of, like, have an anti-war, anti-militarism, like, anti-imperialism point of view, it seems weird to be like, you know, this huge massacre, like, hundreds of innocent people died, but you know who the real victim was. The guy who got blamed for it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if that point of view would necessarily fly today.
1: It had a really untraditional team and road to Broadway, um, which probably is why it didn't really, no one really stepped in. <laughs> yeah.
0: Cause it was three non-professionals. They all lived in Queens and all sort of knew each other socially and were sort of music hobbyists and they were like let's you know collaborate on something and they were all really drawn to this story um, I guess we were influenced by the conviction that Milai seemed the ultimate illustration of how war is destructive to everyone involved, explained Mrs. Sharfman. We didn't think about the commerciality of the subject, said Mr. Strand. We simply thought we could present our concept as a theatrical experience. The three began researching their subject, developing an interpretive rather than literal approach to the material. As they did, their attitudes changed. More and more, said Mr. Strand, we came to feel the subject was so controversial that there was no right and wrong, that we had mixed feelings, that we couldn't decide. I guess maybe that comes through... Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, it's hard to say without seeing it performed. There's sort of limited information available about the details of it.
1: It kind of, you know, there might be a little bit of, like, Godspell influence that it felt like very Brechtian. Storytelling, farcical, weird. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's hard to really know what to make of it. <laughs> I don't know if there's really too much to say about it, other than weird and kind of controversial and and uncomfortable subject matter, a form of the rock musical that people were saying was tired or needed innovation, and three people who are kind of outsiders to the theater community.
1: And covering and making a show around um, a part of the current. American history that
0: people wanted to forget. Right, right. That was still very raw and kind of fresh for everyone. But I found an article from last year about a woman who was the daughter of the lead guitarist for the original cast, and she, like, visited one of the authors who's like a family friend obviously and uh listened to the album for the first time and she is now like crusading to bring it back to broadway to sort of honor her dad's memory there's like a website that's like the lieutenant coming soon to broadway mm-hmm. but i don't know i don't think this show would do well at all today
1: yeah i think that it could kind of have a little off-broadway gig or have an encore. it is interesting to see a show of this size be put on Broadway next to, you know, a show by Jerry Herman, who was, you know, who was arguably one of the kings of Broadway.
0: Right. And it did beat out Good Time Charlie, which was the other sort of big new musical that year for the fourth best musical slot, which is not a small feat.
1: Yeah. We salute you, the Lieutenant.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, but we have questions about your politics. <laughs>
1: You know, I think it's worth noting that a lot of Americans have a growing consciousness at this point about the world around them and their role in it as Americans and what it means to be American in an international context, and I think that in these three people who are workshopping this show at the Queen's Playhouse, it's not surprising that they didn't have the right hot take.
0: No, of course not, and... I'm not expecting it to sort of conform to 2018 sensibilities. No, but I even mean like
1: then. What would you pick as your number?
0: I think I would have liked to see... There was a review that called out... The choreography, a bunch of the reviews called it the choreography as being really good um, and being sort of inspired by like military calisthenics. The reviewer from the New York Daily News said the dance sequence in I'm Going Home was one of the most exultant he'd seen on Broadway for a long time. They're sending me back, they're sending me back home Now I'm getting out of this place By this time tomorrow I'll be home And listening to that song, there's a dance break in the music that really works into a frenzy. So I think that would have been um, a very exciting, and a good number to perform.
1: Yeah, I kind of struggled to find the number that felt like it would be like kind of right in tone, because I think the whole thing has kind of an off tone. Um, I did like the one of the early songs, "Join the Army," but like I don't think that that necessarily gives a good idea of like what the show is about. Well, maybe You're right, right,
0: because it's sort of like this seductive joining the army will solve all your problems yeah, yeah. like you're gonna get to travel the world you're gonna meet some hot babes mm-hmm. like everything uh is gonna work out for you like you're directionless
1: it just feels hard to imagine anything that this that is so explicitly anti-vietnam war being like shown on tv
0: but i mean hair was uh yeah was anti-vietnam war and it was much earlier.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point.
0: I mean, I guess it's hard to know since neither of us were alive to really understand what you know pop culturally was and wasn't acceptable mm-hmm. um, to talk about in like a mainstream way. Yeah,
1: but you know, seeing this next to the other um, best musical nominees, it, it feels so different. I guess. Yeah. It'll lift you up in all
0: the latest Now we're going to move on to the last show that was nominated for Best Musical and another one that also sort of deals with the Vietnam War theme, but in a more abstract way, um, which is Shenandoah. And it was also a hit. It was not quite as big of a hit as The Wiz, but it ran for three, almost three years and over a thousand performances. It won Best Book and Best Actor for John Cullum. The synopsis is... A sprawling musical set during the Civil War, Shenandoah, based on the 1965 film starring Jimmy Stewart, opened on January 7, 1975 at the Alvin Theater in New York for a long run of 1,050 performances. James Lee Barrett, who had written the screenplay, adapted the book with Philip Rose and Peter Udell, with Udell and composer Gary Geld, the team that had been responsible for the long-running Broadway hit Pearlie creating the score. As the pacifist Virginia landowner who refuses to take sides in the conflict that splits the country until his own family is torn apart by the war, John Cullum made a striking portrayal that earned him a Tony Award as Best Actor in a Musical.
1: I really was surprised at how much I liked this show and enjoyed listening to the recording.
0: I liked the score a lot as well. Um, A lot of the critics were hard on it for being like a very intentionally sort of old-fashioned throwback and kind of comparing it unfavorably to Rodgers and Hammerstein and you can definitely hear the influence of Rodgers and Hammerstein especially John Cullum has a few sort of solo numbers that really are definitely descendants of um, the soliloquy from Carousel Mm -hmm. um, just like sort of musically and in terms of the arc that they take I don't think anything in here is as good as as anything in Rodgers and Hammerstein but it it's still a It still does the job well, I think.
1: Yeah. um, One of the um, authors of the show, and I quote, asked, when did Rodgers and Hammerstein become dirty words in the American theater?
0: Which I think is an intentional misreading of the criticism because he makes it seem like people don't like Rodgers and Hammerstein. They're just saying that they tried to be Rodgers and Hammerstein and failed because it didn't have sort of like the depth and power that their songs do. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. But in contrast to The Lieutenant, I think that if you want to make a comment on war and contemporary events kind of uh, related to Vietnam, it makes sense to... Pick a historical time period to jump into that you can draw parallels between that and the contemporary rather than exploring this really hot recent chapter of American history that people don't really want to talk about.
0: Yeah, and at the end, John Cullum's last song, he has this line or like these verses that are like, you know, all of the people that died in this war, like there are, there are children. They're part of us. Like they have names. They're not just numbers. We need to honor them. And like, you can imagine that hearing that in 1975 fresh off Vietnam, that was probably really painful, but also like cathartic to, to hear. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I really um, encourage anyone to um, listen to the cast recording. I think it's very good.
0: At first, I was worried when I, like, saw the synopsis that it was about, you know, like, a Virginia farm owner during the Civil War. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. I think the only sort of uncomfortable uh, artifact is that one of the characters, the youngest son of the family, has a friend who is, like, a slave boy from another family who is kind of, like, happy-go-lucky sort of stereotype and he also he is one of the people who sings freedom which concludes freedom is a state of mind which is <laughs> not true if you are a slave
1: Is he who they sing why am i me together Yeah yeah um i thought that that was like a really haunting and interesting number that me these too. like two young boys are singing like why am i me why am i you Yeah
0: and ultimately that it's totally random and irrelevant the point is like why is one of us and one of us a slave when it is totally arbitrary. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think that sometimes when I'm listening to a recording of a show that I kind of have preconceived notions of, I like don't, I rarely find a show that I feel like flows as well as this. I feel like you know, listening to um, the recording straight through there's like a great variety the numbers, their order really complement one another and I have no idea what the book is like but I imagine it's probably aged not great, but no. who knows? <laughs> it's strange to me, and maybe it's because of the subject matter and regionally where we are, um, that it's not like a common show that, you know, community theaters or high schools perform.
0: I think it's probably too old-fashioned for high schools, but it's come back a few times. Mm-hmm. Like, I found a bunch of reviews from sort of more recent productions. Oh, interesting. It came back in 1989 um, with John Cullum playing the same role again. The review of the 80s production called it well-constructed in a paint-by-numbers sort of way. is <laughs> a real backhanded compliment. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I don't think we need to go too deep into this. No. What did you think they should have performed?
1: Obviously Freedom. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I agree. Whoa, 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 whoa. Freedom is an We bend the nation. Freedom is the right ride- Freedom is a body's imagination. Freedom's in the state of mind. Freedom, 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 freedom. Freedom is a full-time occupation. Freedom's in the state of mind. And that was what they played. That's what the orchestra played when Shenandoah won its two Tonys. They played Freedom. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't know if it was just me, but I felt like they had a hard time playing on down the road. Did you notice that? Yes. It, it was very chaotic. <laughs> So, I guess that's that. That's that for Shenandoah.
1: Mm-hmm. Freedom is notion, ocean sweeping the nation. Freedom is a
0: body, imagination. Freedom is a full-time occupation. in the state of mind. The last, I think, important new musical of that season... That did not get nominated for Best Musical, but it did uh, get seven nominations, was Good Time Charlie. Good Time Charlie was another flop. It ran for a little over a hundred performances. It tells the story of easygoing, milktoast Charlie, the monarch of France, whose country is controlled by corrupt officials until the simple peasant girl Joan appears. She befriends Charlie, dons armor, and leads the French army to victory until her relationship with Charlie succumbs to intrigue and distrust. The book was by Sidney Michaels, music by Larry Grossman, lyrics by Hal Hackety.
1: They had a previous flop um, a few years before with Minnie's Boys, and they also had two other flops after Good Time Charlie, including <laughs> A Doll's Life, which is the another famous flop. It's a musical adaptation of uh, Ibsen's A Doll's House and Grind, which I don't know much about, but I think it's a flop.
0: Yeah, oh, um, I think Hal Prince directed both of those. I saw, I just was watching the Hal Prince documentary last night.
1: While Larry Grossman never found much success writing musicals, he also composed the Snoopy musical um, with Hal Hackety.
0: And this is not, just to clarify, this is not You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. This is a sequel to it called Snoopy with three exclamation points, (laughs) which did not... Uh, make a splash in the same way uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown did.
1: Yeah, but he is actually a really well-established TV composer and has, you know, won his fair share of accolades doing that. So with that being said, I actually enjoyed listening to this recording.
0: Me too. And I think a big part of that is because of the contributions of Jonathan Tunick, who orchestrated it and is known for his frequent collaborations with Sondheim and I think you know is one of the most talented orchestrators in history and he really brings brings the best out of that score. Yeah. One of the issues is that Charlie is not like an interesting or kind of active main character and is really overshadowed by having Joan of Arc be a main character but not the main character. There was also kind of a tone issue where it was like sort of this epic story but it the humor in it was very kind of like lowbrow sort of borscht bell groaners. I think those two things were really what sunk it.
1: Joel Grey stars as Charlie in this. I had thought a lot about him post-cabaret. At this point, he has a Tony for playing the Master of Ceremonies. He has an Academy Award for playing it. He's really a marketable star, but I think that You know, in this era of following Cabaret, he struggles to find the right project for him.
0: For someone who is not like a traditional leading man and is really more of a character actor, he has made a good career for himself
1: and i think the reason why it ultimately closed besides losing a lot of money is that joel had a movie engagement they weren't even going to bother trying to find another star
0: and i think that's kind of what happened a few seasons ago with shuffle along yeah exactly where like it wasn't doing well and then audrey mcdonald ended up you know going on maternity leave unexpectedly and then they were like we can't sustain it for three months or whatever or no, <laughs> maternity leave is longer than three months. Yeah. So Anne Ranking played Joan of Arc. And actually, I never really made this connection until I was listening to it, but she kind of sounds like Bernadette Peters somewhat on the recording. Like, they both kind of have sort of a raspy quality. Anne Ranking is like a little less cutesy and cartoony, but she sounded great on this. Yeah. Um, and apparently, originally, they the original stars were, you know, our girl Barbara Harris from The Apple Tree, and Frank Langella, another reason you shouldn't trust Wikipedia, Wikipedia says Barbara Harris and Al Pacino with no citation. I really doubt Al Pacino was ever in contention, <laughs> but not since Carrie says Frank Langella, which seems much more plausible to me. Yeah. would I think that would have tipped it even more into Jones' camp. Mm-hmm. Like, she would have dominated even more than she already does. The story of Joan of Arc has been told many
1: times in the theater. I think that uh, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan is um, perhaps the most lasting testament of her tale, but I just don't think that this musical really needed to be made, and if it w- needed to be made, it really needed to be told from Joan's point of view.
0: Right. Well, actually, uh, there's a play right now, or maybe it just closed at the public,
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, that Glenn Close was starring in where she plays the mother of Joan of Arc, and Joan becomes a supporting character there. But even then, it's still focused around her. Mm-hmm. The quote from Not Since Carrie... Or no, this is from uh, One More Kiss. Charles Seventh was not an admirable or even interesting character. He lacked just about everything. Whereas Joan was so amazing that if she lived today, she'd still be ahead of her time.
1: This is a show that I did not really know existed. I think I had confused it and Where's Charlie. I had a much different... Idea of what it was like and what it was about. But you know, they have some good songs. It has some good songs, and I especially really liked um, this duet that they have. You still have a long way to go, where yeah. it's kind of like them being at odds with one another. It actually reminded me of Waltz for Ava and Che from Avida. Oh,
0: interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. The running time in Boston was three and a half hours, and it got cut down to 90 minutes. I don't think I could sit through a
1: three and a half hour long musical. Really? It would depend what it was, but just imagining sitting through a troubled show that's three and a half hours long or something that's not just absolutely awe-inspiring and fantastic, I don't think I could.
0: You know, the score is great. Had book problems. That's that's kind of the refrain this year. What it, was your pick for what they should have performed?
1: I think that if they were nominated for Best Musical, I would... Um, oh, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did I? Did you not pick one? Did I put you on the spot?
1: Uh, no, I think that I would have probably picked... Uh, you have, still have a long way to go.
0: Show a little respect. I'd love to.
1: Tell me when. You're forgetting your place again. Forgetting my place? And where is that, please? Well, it's not on my throne on my knees You can sit and sign your name Till you run flight Doesn't even mean you can move Well, at least I can write So can any damn fool Because you can write Doesn't mean you can rule Oh no, oh no, oh no, no, no. You still <laughs> have a
0: long way to go
1: Or Jones, the number that kind of sums up Joan of Arcsteel, Voices <laughs> and Visions I thought was really good
0: I'm learning that Voices and Visions Don't come at your beck and your call they ought to be here by now if they're coming at all Voices and visions as Francis on fire That
1: I'd have to savor, that I'd have to put out the flames I'm naming no names But someone neglected to tell me I'd have to play games then again, they're trying hard to have a Joan of Arc musical that's not centered on Joan of Arc, so it's like, would they actually choose that? But I, if in my ideal world, I would call it Good Time Joan and have her <laughs> Joan perform... Joan did not have a good
0: time. It would be Bad Time
1: Joan. <laughs> and um, have her perform Voices and Visions.
0: Well, now for our, our musical season, we're going to do uh, Mac and Mabel 2, Mabel's Revenge, and Bad Time Joan. <laughs> Well, my choice was a charm song duet that they have called Bits and Pieces. He uh, is taking his armor out of the box for the first time and like putting it together. And there's some very, probably some cute like physical comedy and staging that I think would have been sweet and and lighthearted. Breastplate,
1: breastplate, breastplate A should be buckled to backplate B. Here we have the best
0: remedy known for a man with a weak backbone. And you get to see both of them. Yeah,
1: exactly. They're but, both treasures. Yeah,
0: this is a great score. I was really shocked by, I was shocked how much I liked all of them, honestly.
1: Yeah, compared to even 1998, I felt like these are shows that I thought were Albeit their problems were really interesting, but had scores that I will probably continue to listen to.
0: Yeah, I mean, they all, I think they all just had book problems and not score problems. Yeah. Not too bad. All the all the would
1: be Who's Lancelot?
0: Thing died in it for you. so we already talked about um the where's charlie revival Yes, Where's Charlie? Not Good Time Charlie, which is a Frank Lesser show from the 40s. Um, But the other big revival that year, and the only one that got to perform on the Tonys, was the Angela Lansbury Gypsy revival that came over from London. you all be swell. And looking at the production history of Gypsy, it really it hasn't gone more than fifteen years without a revival since it since it opened, which is kind of wild.
1: Mm-hmm. This is musical theater's Hamlet. It's such a big show
0: and one of the richest roles for women, Madame Rose, which uh, Angela wins the Tony for.
1: And um, she's a vision in her gown. She looks really great. And she also thanks Ethel Merman in the speech. You know, you have no idea. <laughs> what this means, I just never thought it could happen again. Uh, I must express my gratitude to Arthur Lawrence, Steve Sondheim, Julie Stein, and Miss Ethel Merman for creating one of the most memorable, memorable shows in Broadway history in 1959, and for making it possible for us to recreate Gypsy in 1974. Thank you.
0: Oh, speaking of speeches, going back to The Wiz, I figured out what Jeffrey Holder is saying and what it means. Yeah. So he's saying... I will be very brief. What I would like to say is try making something like that out of a cola nut. Ah! And that is a reference to... um, He was in a series of 7-Up commercials in the 70s and 80s where he's like... These are cola nuts. They grow here. They're used to make cola-flavored soft drinks. These, on the other hand, are uncooler nuts. They grow here, too. But as you can see, they're a bit different from cola nuts. And then he, like, holds up lemons and limes. it's and <laughs> like, that's what they make 7-Up out of it. Oh. Anyway, he's referencing uh, those commercials, which I'm sure were omnipresent at the time. Since there were so many shows, see, and we haven't even talked about the plays yet. So since there were so many, so many shows nominated this year, we kind of... Divided and conquered the remaining ones, and I did tiny little overviews of all of the rest of the musicals that season, and then Tim tackled the plays. So I'm just going to quickly go through the other nominated musicals that year. So there was a a big flop called Dr. Jazz, which ran for 42 previews and 5 performances. It got three Tony nominations for Best Actress, Best Costume Design, and Best Choreography. And the synopsis is, it's a story of a young jazz musician, serves as the backdrop for the birth of jazz in America. Then there was The Night That Made America Famous, which was nominated for Best Featured Actor and Best Featured Actress. And Kelly Garrett, who got fired from Mac and Mabel, was nominated as Best Featured Actress. Um, It ran for (laughs) 14 previews, 47 performances, and it's Harry Chapin, who, you know, is most famous for writing Cats in the Cradle. Harry Chapin's socially conscious rock and country songs are performed by Chapin and a cast of 11 in this review. Then there was Dance With Me, which was nominated for Featured Actor, Scenic Design and Choreography, six previews, and almost 400 performances. This show seems truly insane. It was developed in La Mama. And the synopsis is the musical is set in present day New New York City subway station while waiting on the platform. Honey boy daydreams about life, dating, baseball and rock and roll in the 1950s. Then you have The Magic Show, which was nominated for Best Featured Actor and Best Direction. And it this ended up being a huge hit, um, I think, probably for like tourists and families. It ran almost 2000 performances And it was an early Stephen Schwartz musical, who obviously is, you know, very rich from Pippin and Wicked, etc. So it was made as a showcase for Doug Henning, who was like a young magician. The synopsis is, a young magician replaces a fading one, performing several amazing feats along with his assistants in Stephen Schwartz's musical. So it's like a combination uh, musical and magic show. The biggest surprise flop was the Rocky Horror Show. Which had one nomination for Best Lighting, and it ran for four previews and 45 performances. Music, lyrics, and book were by Richard O'Brien. This was planned to be like the hype-up run right before the movie because like the actors, uh, they were like doing it in London, then they opened in Los Angeles, then they closed it and went to the UK to shoot the movie, and then they were like, now we're going to open on Broadway, it's going to be the next Jesus Christ Superstar, and everyone's going to get real hyped for the movie. But it got terrible reviews and closed after 45 performances. And I have a quote from uh, Richard O'Brien, like in retrospect. <laughs> in its first American incarnation, the show that O'Brien calls Rocky survived to mauling from New York critic Rex Reed who said the production was only for homosexuals. It was a remark that seriously offended my wife, O'Brien recalls, and my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the movie ended up being a flop as well and then only sort of became a cult film when it started to play the midnight film circuit.
1: It had a pretty successful revival
0: in the 2000s. Yeah, I, that had an amazing cast. I the, wish I had seen that. Yes. And now uh, and now to Tim with the plays.
1: Yeah, throughout the 70s, I think that there are a really cool and adventurous and artistically ambitious plays being produced. There were 21 plays that were nominated this year. I'm just going to cover the plays that won awards. First up, we have Equus, which won for Best Play that year, and Best Director. And um, even in the published version of The script, uh, Peter Schaefer, who um, wrote the play, talks about how... um John Dexter's direction was um, really um, crucial to the development of the show. So I guess a little synopsis of it. Equus is a 1973 play. This production actually had come over from London. And it focuses on a young man with a pathological religious fixation on horses and the psychiatrist who attempts to unravel the mysteries of the young man's psyche. It was inspired by a true story of religious mutation of horses near Suffolk. That led Schaefer to try to figure out um, what could have motivated the culprit. Focusing on themes of religious obsession and ritual sacrifice, it constructs a unique theology in the young man's mind involving horses and a fictional deity named Equus. And um, it ran on Broadway for over uh, 1,200 performances, which for a play is a pretty long run. Um, Kind of a fun fact is uh, Marianne Seldes appeared in every single performance, um, first in the role of Hester and um, then in the role of... Dora who is um, the young man's mother and then next up we have Edward Albee's Seascape which only ran for 65 performances it won the Pulitzer Prize that year the second one that Albee won after a delicate balance in 1967 I didn't actually know this um, but he had directed the play too So in Seascape, it concerns Nancy and Charles, an American couple on the verge of the major life change of retirement. And they're having relationship problems Um, and they're discussing them on, you know, at the end of their vacation at the seashore. And out of the water appears these two human sized lizards named Leslie and Sarah, who speak and act like people and the lizards have evolved to such a degree that they no longer feel at home in the sea and are compelled to seek life on the land what the lizards experience with nancy and charles nearly drives them back to the sea but with an offer of help from the human couple they decide to stay
0: i'm not really like super familiar with his body of work but he doesn't really do does he do this kind of magical realism normally or is this kind of like a departure for him
1: this is kind of a departure from him i think that um within kind of the theater of the absurd he's kind of the american child of that beckett and ionesco kind of tradition that um was is kind of seen as more of like a european thing but like while he in tone really adheres to that at this point he hasn't really done anything this like magically real before while he did win the pulitzer prize for this it's kind of seen as like a minor work in his greater body of work and i don't think gets his best play. I think that an interesting thing about Albie is that like while people are reading him everyone's always looking for symbols and meaning in the symbols in his work and like I don't think that that's necessarily how you need to be reading him and trying to you know, assign meaning to the fact that these lizards just popped out of the ocean and, you know, are having this really normal conversation with these two, like, elderly, upper-middle-class white people is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just kind of, you just kind of got to go along with it and not <laughs> ask too many questions about it. Um, it got a really positive review in The New York Times, and Frank Langella, uh ends up uh, winning Best Supporting Actor for playing Leslie, which is one of the sea people. Thank you. To each and every person
0: who voted for me, you've made me very, very Very happy. I've never wanted wanted to be anything else but an actor. I'm very proud of my contribution to
1: Seascape, and I'm very, very proud to be a member of this profession. Thank you and you know the costumes are really great thinking about this and like a play that i'll get to discussing the ritz it shows how much of an artist albie is and how he's really questioning the form of drama you know this is a play where there isn't much happening and it's kind of a discussion of just life and meaning of life and what it means to be nothing and if you're doing nothing are you are you really in charge of your life i want
0: to read that that sounds fun
1: yeah um well i
0: <laughs> oh you have it yes Ooh. i want to read more plays i used to do it all the time and now i never do
1: it's hard to get into to reading it but it gets good next up we have athol fugard's sis we is dead and the island there are two plays there are two kind of like one act plays and uh they were kind of performed in repertory so the people who win the best actor in a play category are john connie and winston Noshona, who are two south african actors who actually develop the scripts with athol fugard and fugard ends up directing the two plays these were south african plays that were brought over to the u.s i actually was able to watch a performance a recorded performance of *Sizwe bonzi is dead and it's really fantastic
0: yeah this was one i i had studied in school and we watched that that film production and it was it's incredible I really recommend it. It's not that long, and it has, you know, these two Tony-winning performances.
1: And I think it's also interesting to see this type of theater on Broadway, especially, I think, that in America, the playwright is given this ultimate power, and as seen as, when we think of American theater, we think of people like Albie and Arthur Miller, but to see someone who's working in theater in such a... Um, you know, horizontal way um, I think is really cool and interesting. Yeah,
0: and the actors are really, like, cool as a cucumber when they come up to accept their Tonys. Like, I think at least one of them is wearing sunglasses (laughs) and they both both just say, thank you, (laughs) and they go. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Both plays are just kind of about apartheid era South Africa and kind of the inhumanities and racial dynamics going on. Suswee Bonzi is dead. takes place in 1972, and it's about someone whose past book, which is kind of like the identification that black South Africans had to carry around, has three days to get it to work. Um, And if he doesn't work, he'll be deported. And that... Was four days ago. Um, so he comes across someone else's passbook and kind of passes it off as his own. And all these questions of identity um, come up about it. And like, is he willing to give up his family and his name in order to just survive in this society? And the island um, is actually very cool. I want to actually go and read it. It's inspired by a true story, and it's set in an unnamed prison, clearly based on uh, Robin Island, where Nelson Mandela was held, and John and Winston are in prison for their opposition to apartheid, um, and they're rehearsing a performance of Antigone for their cellmates. Um, and then John is give his sentences reduced and he prepares to walk free. And we're kind of left with the question of how will Winston survive without him? Yeah, I guess talking about Albie's relationship to the theater of the absurd, it is interesting to see a South African um, writer who um, has a lot of the same probably influences as Albie has, but adapting it for his own cultural context.
0: And it's funny, you know, to have two shows in a row where we have the the relatively unusual thing of having two actors nominated for one Tony.
1: Yeah. Well, in this case, they, and they win, so. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, Well-deserved, I think.
1: Yes. Ellen Burstyn wins Best Actress for her um, role in Same Time Next Year, and it's kind of like a dumb, it's, i It's gotten, <laughs> the plot focuses on two people married to others who meet for a romantic tryst once a year for two dozen years. Yeah. Yeah, and it ran for like almost 1,500 performances, so obviously people liked it, which makes sense. And the last show um, that we'll talk about is The Ritz, which is a farce that's set in a gay bathhouse. It's by um, Terrence McNally, who actually won uh, Tony in the last episode for best book.
0: Yeah, for ragtime. For ragtime, yes. (laughs) Um, I know it feels so long ago now.
1: (laughs) I know. um, It's a gay bathhouse where unsuspecting heterosexual Cleveland businessman Gaetano Proclo has taken refuge from his homicidal mobster brother-in-law, Carmine Vespucci. And there's, uh, you know a bunch of different oddball characters running around, a chubby chaser, go, go boys, a squeaky voice detective and googie Gomez, a third great Puerto Rican entertainer with visions of Broadway glory. So it's kind of your classic farce fair where, you know, there are all these mistaken identities. And also Rita Moreno is amazing when she comes up to accept her speech.
0: Yeah. I want to, I want to unpack this acceptance speech because number one, she looks amazing. Mm -hmm. She's wearing a matching white turban and dress and the dress is very, like very stylish by today's standards like it's very reformation like mm-hmm. it's got the deep deep v and like sort of the flowy i guess it's like rayon maxi dress um and she's like obviously not wearing a bra and she like comes running up and like her <laughs> boobs almost fall. oh out. yes <laughs> yes i'm gonna you know put in some clips from it but it's worth watching it to see just like her facial expressions and movements well <laughs> i mean rita moreno is thrilled but Rosa Dolores Alverio for Rumaca, Puerto Rico, is undone! She calls out something that we've been talking about a little bit, category fraud. I'd like to say, Miss Supporting
1: Actress, whoever you might have been, I'm a little bit regretful because I am the leading lady of the Ritz. I'm not a supporting actress. I mean... <laughs> Was, uh, if it was up to Googie Gomez, who is the character I play in The Rich, she would say, listen, honey, the only thing I support in that show is my bibs. And I would actually say, I don't know, it's complicated because it is like a lot of men on stage. Right. Um, That's kind
0: of what I figured it was, where it's like she's the most important woman in it but she's still not maybe wouldn't be considered a lead
1: i mean i think that she is her character is probably what's memorable about the ritz it doesn't hold up and it's also kind of offensive and funny enough terence mcnally and edward Albee dated in the 50s Ooh. Yeah. and the last play that i'll talk about is this sherlock holmes revival which ran for 471 performances and it's just like you know a play that draws from three different sherlock holmes stories and a love interest was added to the chagrin of sir arthur conan doyle was
0: he still alive
1: no he was dead at this point oh, but okay. when the play was oh, written oh, in see. like you know the turn of the century yes
0: yeah. well when i was looking at the production history of this it's uh the original was in 1900 or whatever and then it was revived many many times but the last one was in was this production in the 70s so it seems like it kind of you know at this point it's like it's just a little too old-fashioned to appeal to audiences anymore but 75 years is a pretty good life for a play
1: the only two awards that it won was best scenic design and best lighting design
0: it's pretty good yeah. That's you know it had to beat out all the musicals mm-hmm. okay okay that was a marathon but yeah. we did it uh-huh um So that's it for this year. The next episode is going to be Another two-parter about the 2005 Tonys, uh, you know, Light in the Piazza, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and my personal musical nemesis, (laughs) Spamalot. So if you have any, you know, questions or comments, email us at mylittletonyspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonys, because we're going to post lots of cool stuff. Follow, subscribe, rate on iTunes, and... I think that's it. Yeah, sounds good. All right. See you guys next time. See you next time. The American Theater Wings 1975 Tony Award. Brought to you by General Foods, makers of Brands brand caffeinated coffee. Proves how far you can get on good taste. It's now the third largest coffee in America.